If you would join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think that as we think about this topic of discouragement, it strikes me that in ministry, it's not a matter of if we're going to be discouraged, but when we will be discouraged. I got to think of discouragement and what creates it as maybe the shadow that's cast from this passage as we've looked together over uh, last night and kind of heard uh, what uh, Dr. Law's message was just based on all of 1 Corinthians and then Dr. Shaddix as he led us through those things and even what Kyle told us about ministry and the temptations of it and what we might rely on. It is that 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as Paul writes it, I think is speaking to us about as we think about being pastors, is speaking to us about what we will face and about the temptations that we might fall into as a result. I couldn't help uh, in preparing for this, but think about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. Um, So you may be familiar with the movies. Maybe you've read that book. Um, In the movies, at one point, uh, the dwarves and Bilbo enter into Mirkwood Forest. Um, What happens there, they're told the last word they get from Gandalf the wizard is, don't get off of the path, right? Keep walking on the path. And they don't necessarily heed that message. And at one point, they're walking around almost like in a trance. It's that they they really don't know what's going on. Everything is cloudy. They can't really get a perspective on what's going on. In the book, in chapter 8, Tolkien describes it this way. He says, long after they were sick for a sight of the sun and of the sky and longed for the feel of wind on their faces, there was no movement of air down under the forest roof and it was everlastingly still and dark and stuffy. Even the dwarves felt it who were used to tunneling and living at times for long whiles without the light of the sun, but the hobbit who liked holes to make a house in but not to spend summer days in felt that he was slowly being suffocated. You know, it strikes me that sometimes that's the way ministry feels. It feels like we're walking in this place where everything we thought we knew all of a sudden doesn't make sense. It's this alternate reality, this alternate universe that we're seeing as we look at people and as we seek to be faithful, and yet they don't appreciate what we do. They may look and scoff even at some of the things that we say, and the whole picture and idea of a Christ-centered, faithful ministry leading people to be Christ-centered and faithful in their lives is dismissed for something else. And it can beat us down, and it can discourage us. And so I think as we look at this passage and we think about Paul writing in chapter 2, Dr. Shaddix talked about this yesterday, the reality that chapter 2, verse 3, he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and that picture of the impact that a situation or a feeling like this can have on us or even the frustration of it I think gives us the potential to be discouraged to be discouraged by that struggle to be discouraged by the opinions and detractions of those who are relying on the world's wisdom and on fleshly power in their lives it also might lead us into a mode where we would begin to rely on those things in ministry as well as we look at what people are prioritizing. And so what Paul is doing is he points them to Christ and to the sufficiency of his power to show them what his ministry is founded on. I think that what Paul is also doing is speaking to himself, right? Showing us the way that he was faithful in ministry and the things that he looked to to remain faithful in that. 
And so if you would read with me in chapter one, verse one through verse 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There's the danger, right, in verse 17 that Dr. Shaddix exposed to us yesterday. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, to be certain, the cross of Christ cannot be emptied of its power, but we can minister in such a way as to rob the cross of its power as we seek to put things on ourselves. And so as Paul is laying out in the verses that follow this, the, the worldly juxtaposed to godly wisdom and the differences between the two, but then the realities that, that we might seek to rely on one over the other, we find Paul pointing them in these verses to what they need to overcome that. So in verse four through verse nine, Paul's pointing to their identity in Christ and then an appeal to sort out what is causing their divisions based on those realities. And so I wanted to consider today that though what Paul says in these verses is directed to the Corinthian church, it's as much a message for him as it is for them, as much a message on what he should rely on as he seeks to accomplish ministry and as he does. By all accounts, they're looking down on Paul, right? They, as Jim said yesterday, it's kind of hard to overcome. Uh, the reality is that you're ugly and you can't preach kind of seems like what they're saying to him. And so the word that maybe comes to mind is maybe they're thinking that his, his ministry is just bland, right? They think he's not inspiring enough or not eloquent. Let's put it into our modern vocabulary. I, I don't feel uplifted after listening to you, pastor. I remember having a conversation in the foyer of a past place of service and as people were walking out, somebody stopped me and they were just, they said, I just want to hear from you. I just want to hear you. The translation of that being, tell us some more stories, right? I mean, you know, juice it up a little bit. And I just remember feeling so put off by that. 
Like, what else do you want me to bring you except for God's word? To be certain, there's this somewhat disorienting and baffling reality to consider that we can preach a faithful, Christ-centered sermon, have precise exegesis and exposition that is faithful, and some will walk away thinking that that wasn't good at all. And some might even be willing to say it out loud. And it's not just preaching, right? That mindset begins to work its way into the core of worship and practice, and then become tactical in the sense that it becomes the focus of ministry building, as we've already talked about here this weekend. And if we aren't careful, we could be lulled to sleep in a forest where our attention and our gaze begins to fall to ourselves rather than to the fullness of Christ and a desire to honor the supremacy of Christ in our ministries. And what we do is abandon and yield to the siren song of worldly wisdom that would give us credit for being clever and eloquent and sophisticated. So dealing with the discouragement of all of it can lead to tremendous exasperation and frustration, right? Even maybe anger and all kinds of things that scripture describes opposite of the fruit of the spirit, describing as the deeds of the flesh. And pastors are leaving ministry in droves, right? I can't help but feel like much of it is centered around this, even personal friends that I've watched in the last few years just fed up with the realities of what they were having to deal with in ministry, walking away, saying, I don't want to do this anymore. So we might have the feeling of wanting to turn that into a modern day occurrence, a modern day reality, right? But it's exactly what Paul is countering in the church at Corinth. And so I think as we reflect on that and seek to redeem this fallen reality about ourselves that we can become so discouraged that we might be willing to walk away or even more dangerous, the reality that we might become so discouraged that we would begin to compromise ministry and start to yield to what people are saying to give ourselves an easier road. And I wish I could tell you that I was preaching this out of a scientific examination of what pastors face whenever they struggle through these things. What I'm telling you mostly today is from experience and the reality of walking through these things and being baffled at the, at the truth that, that people didn't just want Christ. They wanted a celebrity. They wanted more from me. Let's hear from you, Pastor. And so how do we redeem that? Well, I think Paul does, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a beautiful job of laying out a picture for us of how we guard ourselves from falling victim to those things, to guard us from it. And so three truths that we find from the passage that redeem that reality. The first is this, that we must be constantly reminded of our identity and standing in Christ. All right, that's verse four through verse nine. As Paul starts to speak to them of those things, we, we are reminded of who we are. Now, those of you from a certain generation might remember um, Stuart Smalley, right? The fictional self-help, self-esteem guru on Saturday Night Live. And his answer to discouragement or feelings of inadequacy was that he would look in the mirror and he would say, well, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you, Right? That's not what Paul is doing here. He's not pointing us to ourselves and saying, well, just look inside of yourself and, and realize that you're good. No, he's reminding us to think of our identity in Christ and the realities that we are given that from Jesus and we are only that in Jesus. 
In fact, he says in verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And at every turn, he's pointing us back to that grace, the grace of God that was given to us, given from Christ. And then he talks about the implication of that. Verse five, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. That question last night about verse seven is the reality of being enriched and that picture being brought to bear so that you were not lacking in any gift. It means that we are able to know God's word and we're able to make known God's word. And that what the Lord has given us is the ability to do that. And so enriched gives this sense of, of fullness of what God has done in us. And so not lacking, it's the same picture of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so what God has done is enriched us in those ways. And so in struggling through what the discouragement might be as they're seeking to rely on worldly wisdom, Paul is reminded of his identity in Christ and is pointing out to them their identity identity in Christ and what the grace of God has brought to them. And so for a man, an apostle who's being challenged on several fronts, criticized and demeaned in some senses, that should speak clearly as to the reality of what Christ has done in him as he points the Corinthians to what Christ has done in them and it points to us about what Christ has done in us. Look at what he says about what this accomplishes. He says that you were enriched in, all, in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you were not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He will sustain you, guiltless. He is faithful. It keeps putting this reality of our identity, but our identity in Christ and pointing us to Jesus. And so for us, right, in this temptation that we would have to move Jesus to the fringes and put ourselves in the center as we struggle through what people are saying about our ministry and even the frustrations that come as we seek to be faithful in ministry, yet find that some people don't want that, is this whole picture of who we are and knowing who we are in Christ Jesus and that being enough. And so the encouragement that Paul uses, the key to understanding our identity is not to look at ourselves, but to consider what the grace of Christ poured out in me has wrought in me. And it's all based on the power and faithfulness of God and what that does in us. And so it's not because of me and it's not from me, but it's important to stop and consider the impact this should have as we consider our own tendencies towards discouragement. Like Paul, we might find ourselves under the microscope of unbiblical qualifications and worldly priorities and Satan-provoked skepticisms of calling and competency. And if we look inward, we'll not find adequacy. But if we look to him, then we do. And so that's the word that God gives to Paul that he recounts in 2 Corinthians as we hear the words of Christ to him that Dr. Shaddix reminded us of yesterday that my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul speaks that I would rather boast about the power of Christ in me, his grace. 
And so remembering our identity, right, not in ourselves, right, not in what we can do or who we are, but our identity in Christ is the starting place to counter the discouragement, frustration, and challenges that we'll face in ministry. But with that temptation to look within comes the second truth that we have to redeem. And the beautiful thing is that Paul redeems it as he speaks to them. And so the first thing is that we must remember our identity in Christ. The second thing is that we must constantly reject the impulse and expectation to center ministry on ourselves instead of Christ. It comes to light in the discussion of divisions among them, which seems on this point to be based around the teachers who they're listening to. Right? And so as they begin to, to focus on those teachers and on following them, and even in some senses it, it becomes a, you know, a, a, a virtuous thing to point to the teacher that they had or the, the person who baptized them. Right? We see that Paul begins to use that discussion of the baptism to frame the point that their priorities are wrong, that they're looking to the wrong things. And so the danger and reason for Paul's overall conviction in chapter two, verse one through verse five is the pitfall presented in chapter one, verse 17, that we would empty the cross of its power because we're focused on the wrong things. And so Paul says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, to create a following, right? But to preach the gospel and create followers of Jesus Christ who have been changed by his grace and who have had these same things that the Corinthians have had happen in them happen to them. And so behind that conviction is the realization of a trap and a snare, something that we might easily fall victim to if we're not careful. And so that one could, instead of determining to be faithful to preach the gospel and to rely on the power of the cross, that they would fall victim to the trap of trying to make our words eloquent and our speech lofty, that instead of the gospel being held in esteem, that we would instead be held esteem ourselves by worldly accounts of wisdom. I'll never forget uh, the same church I talked about earlier, having a conversation with a lady who wasn't, wasn't trying to do this at all, but we were just talking about her life. Her husband had passed away a few years before um, I got to the church, and so as we were kind of having a conversation, she was telling me their journey, and so she just told me about how when they first got married, they were members at First Baptist Dallas, and uh, their pastor was Dr. W.A. Criswell there. And sometime later, they moved from Dallas and moved to Memphis, and they went to Bellevue Baptist Church, where their pastor was Dr. Adrian Rogers. So it's kind of this incredible who's who of preachers. I kind of jokingly told her, I said, well, then I guess I can only hope to, uh, ever hope to be the third best pastor that you've ever had. But I can remember just this feeling of inadequacy washing over me and immediately wanted to think, well, what does she think of my preaching? My goodness. And I think it just shows us we, we live and minister on a slippery slope, one that is easy to slide off of. Moving just a little bit off of the path can create a slide that continually takes us downward. And that temptation to measure up and be held in high esteem for people to love us and love our preaching, we could easily begin to take the viewpoint that the Corinthians were drifting into and looking at ourselves and considering ministry about us and what we receive from it and who follows as a result and making that the priorities. They were comparing Paul to the others and in some senses found him to be lacking. But he didn't compromise to win their approval. 
Instead, he persisted in faithfulness, not deterred by their criticisms because he was focused on the truth of the gospel. And that's how we counter the tendency to make ministry about us, to point to ourselves in the midst of it. And so in redeeming that fallen reality about ourselves that we might be tempted to walk away, but, but even worse, that we might have the tendency to begin to yield to those things, to begin to prioritize them and then to change our focus based on that so that we rob ministry of its power because we have taken the focus off of the cross of Christ. And as we talked about earlier, anytime we put ourselves in the center and push Christ to the periphery or move Christ away, but nearly anytime we put ourselves in the center, it has the effect of moving Jesus away. And what do we expect our people to have if we do that? And so Paul's conviction was firm. Everything we see in verse 18, that for or since the word of the cross is folly, it is pointing back to all that he said here in this temptation and in this danger. And so for the Corinthians, they were looking at those who they baptized. I love the way that Paul says this. He says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, there's quarreling among you. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Christ uh, or Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. And he asked if Christ is divided, was Paul crucified for you? And how ridiculous would it seem to point out that truth that Paul would elevate himself to the same place that Jesus would occupy in their lives, yet we might do the same things if we make ministry about ourselves, right? That we would say, was I crucified for you or, or live and minister in a way that kind of gives that impression, And we would certainly never want to do that. So we have to reject the impulse and expectation that some people might have for us to center ministry on ourselves instead of on Christ. And so as we think about that, how do we we counter these things? It's that we have to be constantly reminded reminded about our identity in Christ. We have to resist this impulse and expectation to center ministry on ourselves instead of Christ. And so the beautiful picture that all of this points us to, especially in verse 17, is that we must keep our eyes fixed firmly on Christ. How do we counter those things? How do we reject those impulses? How do we remind ourselves of our identity as we keep our eyes on Jesus? Verse 17, Paul says, I was not sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not relying on words of wisdom or eloquence in that sense. And so we think about this truth that Jesus is never and should never become a topic to be dissected. Instead, he is a Lord to be worshiped. We must keep our eyes on him. That's verse 17 and it's pointing. He's pointing to the work of Christ, the cross of Christ and what Jesus did in it. As Dr. Shaddix reminded us last night to continually see the power of the cross and recognize where the heart of ministry lies and what the power of ministry is, and it's in Jesus Christ, not in ourselves. And thus the one who wants to be faithful to accomplish what he has called us to must realize that we must dwell with the one who has called us to do it. At a certain point on their journey through the forest to Bilbo and the dwarves, have faced a lot of harrowing things and challenges and they want to see if they're close to the end so they send Bilbo up a tree. And Tolkien describes it this way. He says, he punched his way through the tangled limbs with many a slap in the eye 
He was greened and grimed from the old bark of the greater boughs. But in the end, he poked his head above the roof of leaves and his eyes were nearly blinded by the light. He could hear the dwarves shouting up at him, but he could not answer, only hold on and blink. The sun was shining brilliantly and it was all around him a sea of dark green ruffled here and there by the breeze. He looked for a long time and enjoyed the feel of the breeze in his hair and on his face. In the movie, he pokes his head above those trees and you just see the breeze hit him in the face and all of the fog that was there from that walk through the forest just clears. And you see that what ultimately was this foggy, right, un, uh, you know, uninformed feeling of walking around and not knowing where he was going is lifted and he sees very clearly where he's supposed to go. Seeing Christ and recognizing rightly who he is completely changes everything about our perspective on ministry. So ministry is going to be hard, right? But when we put our eyes on him, we find purpose bigger than our circumstances and power to endure even the most scathing criticisms and detractors. It's power to endure even when things get incredibly hard. It's why the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's why when we think about Peter, when he in victory stepped out on the water to walk toward Jesus, began to sink when he began to focus on the wind and the waves around him. This is the conviction expressed by the sons of Korah who write in Psalm 84, one and two and 10, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And so the cure for discouragement, the counter to tendencies toward despair, tendencies towards relying on worldly wisdom is fellowship with Jesus to be lifted from the plane of the grind of the struggles of ministry by gazing upon Christ and even considering his work as Hebrews chapter 12 reminds us who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember him who endured from sinners such hostility so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It is fixing our eyes on Jesus. And so let us counter the potential that we would be discouraged in pastoral ministry and to even abandon faithful Christ-centered ministry by leaving altogether or by compromising and shifting priorities for the applause, the affection, and the adoring from men. Let us counter it with the faithfulness of determining to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And so let us pray for the grace to labor faithfully from a faithful Lord who has enriched us in every way through his grace, who will sustain us to the end and be faithful to us in everything that we will face. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. God, as we look at this picture of ministry, God, a ministry that the apostle Paul was given, Lord, one that was from him, an apostle called by you, yet, Lord, they doubted it. Yet, Lord, all they could do was to cast doubt on those things by looking at Paul's ministry. And yet what we see is that, Lord, Paul was laboring for something else, not for himself. So, God, we might face those same tendencies. 
to seek to move you to the fringes and move ourselves to the center. And certainly our people might even have that effect as they, Lord, call for certain things from us or expect certain things out of us. God, may we reject that impulse. And so God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. May we stand in and rely on your grace as Romans 5 tells us. Father, may we trust in you. Father, would we not compromise, Lord, the moments that we have of spending time with you to do other things. God, help us to keep, Lord, in our minds and keep in our priorities how important it is that we would look to you, that we would dwell with you, that we would gaze upon you, that we would know fellowship with you. God, we pray that Jesus' example would be ours, that in moments, Lord, when we might be tempted toward these things that we would steal away, that we would get alone, and that we would spend time with you. And Father, in that place that we would, Lord, be fortified and strengthened, made ready and equipped for the task that is before us. God, we know that ministry can be a hard place, but Lord, we know it's worth it when we consider what you endured and have given and when we look at what people can have in that. And God, I pray that we would not empty the cross of its power by relying on other things, by, Lord, seeking to manipulate others so that we might gain a following and look, Lord, important or impressive in the eyes of men. But that, God, we would trust in you to accomplish your work in your way through your means. And so, Lord, forgive us for moments when, or maybe we have drifted Forgive us for moments when our emotion or our fear or our despair or our discouragement or our frustration have not matched the qualities and the virtues and the fruits of the spirit that you've called us to have. And God, we pray for a sustaining from your hand. Lord, we know we need your help. God, I pray for these brothers as they seek to do those very same things in their ministries and in their places of service. And God, would the result be that people would see you high and lifted up and that people would give glory to you. We ask it in your name and for your sake. In the name of Jesus, amen.